All right, everybody, let's go ahead and make our way to our seats. Let's go ahead and make our way to our seats, and let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. We begin today a new series in, worship, in our worship service, and our new series is going to be through the book of Exodus. I don't want to spoil too many of our bullets for the morning worship service, but there is, there's a topic that's very much informational um, uh, for uh, Sunday School today to kind of prepare us a little bit better to read what we're going to have in the book of Exodus. But before I did that, I wanted to take a few minutes, or as many minutes as you would like to take, actually. I was uh, reminded, um, my son uh, Peyton has been uh, doing one of our Bible reading programs, and um, this is kind of a a long way around explaining things. Um, uh, A few months ago, ago I started having some, some knee soreness, and so instead of running so many times a week, I started mixing in some swimming. And the only pool that is available during the day is down at Ogden High School. And so uh, I take Peyton down with me. And he said to me the other day, he said, Dad, can I, uh, when we go swimming, can I ask you Bible questions? And I was like, of all the things that you can ask me, yes. <laughs> like that, I will field those. And so he writes down questions, and that's kind of the topic of our conversation when we drive down and back. And it occurred to me, I, I've, in years past, I've, I've always tried to do this in Sunday school, where occasionally I just say, hey, what Bible questions do you have? And if I can answer them in a, in the, in a moment, I will. And if not, I'll jot them down and get an answer to you later. So as you've been reading through the Bible this year, have you come across, and, and we, we just take as little or as much time now as we want to take, and then we'll jump into what I was going to talk about for Sunday school. But I was reminded uh, from Peyton, like, oh yeah, just having questions regularly answered is really helpful. So, as you've been reading through the Bible, big or small, what Bible questions have come up as you've been uh, reading through whatever program you're on, because we had three different programs, as you've been reading through this year, what Bible questions have come up in your mind? Yes, sir. God doesn't do evil, yes. Yeah, so, okay, so that's a great question. Uh, the question is this. At the end of the book of Job, it says that, um, that the evil that God did, um, God made up for with good. Okay? Uh, so does God do evil? Well, the answer is no. God does not do evil, but it kind of comes down to the meaning of that word evil, and it's the Hebrew word rang. Um, and rang can mean a lot of different things. Most notably, it can mean evil, or it can mean bad, or it can also simply mean disadvantageous, okay? So something that you would, it's not inherently good or inherently bad, it's, 
it's something that you would not at that time consider to be advantageous. You wouldn't consider it to be advantageous. Okay, It would be, from your perspective, a negative development, though that negative development has no morality attached to it at all. Okay, And so that's more of the sense of the word that we're... That that we think the writer means there with that word rang, uh, that the, the, the negative events that God um, allowed to take place in Job's life, God more than made up for. So it's not evil in the sense of um, wrong morally, it's uh, disadvantageous things. Um, this, however, does lead to another observation about Old Testament books, especially like Job. The we tend to think of death as a hard stop on life, okay? Um, as death does that with living creatures. <laughs> Ancients did not think of it that way. Um, physical death was gateway into the life after. And every culture, every religion had an afterlife. And that was the main part of life that you prepared yourself for. And so when you read that somebody's life ended, they did not think of that as negatively, perhaps, as we do today. It wasn't exactly something they looked forward to, but at the same time, um, this life was a small part of the bigger one to come. And so when we come to books like Job and you see fleeting life, we cringe at that, and this was something that ancients were a little more comfortable with. hope that makes sense. Great question. Another question I got was, just to kind of warm things up, what does Leviticus mean? Um, what does Leviticus mean? <laughs> um, that's actually not the name of the book in the Hebrew Bible. The, they, in the Hebrew Bible, they usually just go with like the first word of the book. And in this case, the book Leviticus means, and it is written, or the written things. So that's how it would be written in Hebrew. The Leviticus is uh, the word for law, and it comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. So we kind of get that word 3rd, 4th century BC. That word comes into Greek and then into English. But when it was originally written in Hebrew, it didn't have a title. That was just kind of the first word of the book, Leviticus. Okay, other questions? Yes, Joe. Um, okay. Okay, I think what David is saying there is a drink offering of blood um, was a pagan practice where they would sacrifice an animal, of course, and collect the blood in a cup. The, the idea of a, of a drink offering uh, in God's economy is that the blood would then be, or the, there were drink offerings specified in the Old Testament, and they would be poured out onto the ground. And 
the idea of a drink offering is that it was completely spent. Okay. Um, what the pagan gods would do, however, is they would take a cup of blood, in most cases, they, they would also pour it out, but in most cases they would leave it in front of the altar to appease the god. Okay. Now, David interacted with a lot of pagan kings um, who lived in very close proximity to them. And there was no such thing back then as the separation of church and state. Okay, so, so when David would go for one of these official meetings or something like that, it was common practice to have a sacrifice for the gods. When we like, see Roman government, for example, before their proceedings would meet, they would have all sorts of pagan um, sacrifices and atonements to seek the favor of the gods for wisdom. And David said, I'm not participating in that. I'm not doing it. I'm not even going to take the name of your God on my lips. Okay? Um, so removed, it, you know, they can do it, but David is not going to participate at all. And this is quite a claim, because you can imagine how this would be offensive to a foreign government. Hey, before we get to terms, come into here and take this cup and put it in the altar as we beseech the favor of the gods. And David says, nope not going to do that. So zealous was David, he wouldn't even honor their sacrifices. I, I would have to double check that with the commentary, but I'm almost certain that's what's going on there. Other questions? Yes, Heather. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So in this in this scene, Jesus is up with Peter, James, and John on a mountain, and he's transfigured himself before them. The other disciples were down below. And a boy was brought to them who was demon-possessed, and they were not able to... I'm reviewing this, Heather, for the sake of everybody else. Uh, they were not able, those disciples were unable to drive the demon out from that boy. Uh, which was a surprise to them, because all through the book of Mark, Jesus had given the disciples um, authority to do that. Uh, Jesus comes down the mountain, and they say, Jesus, we can't do this, and... Jesus does it, and they say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, some things can only be, some, some demons can only be driven out by prayer. Okay. And um, what does Jesus mean by that? I think what Jesus means by that is that, okay, often when we read the life of Jesus, we think of him as falling back almost constantly on the fact that he was God and man in one, okay? Because that's what we would do, right? If we were fully God, we would always kind of lean on that, lean on that. But Jesus wasn't divided so easily like that. He wasn't God and man in two parts. He was fully God and fully man holy together in one. And what we actually find as Jesus walks on the earth is that he relatively 
for, it, it, most of the time, he was, he was accessing God through the same means that we have. Okay, he was speaking to his father. He had a robust prayer life. He hungered. He had thirst. He was weary from his journeys. Okay, and what Jesus is saying here is, there was something deficient to the disciples. There was something deficient about your access to God. Okay? Either you thought, you, you started to think that it was you, or you, you thought that there was some program, programmatic way of saying things. In other words, you thought you could do like a magic trick. Okay? and that the power was flowing specifically through you, that you were the, that you were the um, key factor here. Okay? But what Jesus is demonstrating is, hey, I, you should have been accessing God in prayer as I have been, such that the Holy Spirit has filled you and is flowing through you. And then you would have had divine power and capability because you would have realized you were just a vessel through which God was working, see. And it was prayer that would have not only given them that power, but also reminded them to cut themselves out of that equation. And so Jesus is, on the one hand, encouraging them toward prayer and dependence on God, but also highlighting his own prayer and his own dependence on God as he walked this earth. Does that make sense? And it's also a really helpful reminder to us today that there are hard cases. And um, pastors can sometimes get to thinking, or the Lord's servants can sometimes get to thinking, that they're the essential ingredient. And that's not the case at all. Um, God is the essential ingredient. And you need to access God through, by walking with him, through listening to him in his word, through prayer, and then when you meet with people, it's God flowing through you and not you relying on your own wisdom and so forth. Okay, others, these are great questions. Yes, Danielle. Okay. Yes. Yes. It it isn't that 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 passage has perplexed people. Um, what we think he's talking about is that Paul took upon himself a Nazarite vow. Okay, as you would do in the Old Testament, you wouldn't. Samson was under a Nazarite vow, and he would not cut his hair. He wouldn't touch anything dead. He wouldn't drink any alcohol. Um, and so there was some vow that Paul had put himself under in the Nazarite way, which precluded him from being able to cut his hair. And he was commenting that he had fulfilled his vow, and now it was time to cut his hair uh, because his Nazarite vow was complete. Okay. Now, why would Paul want to do that? Um, well, Nobody knows. 
Nazarite vows were always fully voluntary, okay? So it's not, they, they, it's not like we're obligated to do those, nor were Jews then. They could always take it upon themselves if they wanted to, okay? Um, and so we're not sure why Paul felt the need to take a Nazarite vow or why he would have even done that, given that he's living under the new covenant. And this has perplexed commentators and interpreters for many years. Because we're like, they, we start asking broader questions, like, what does that mean? How does Paul want us to use the law? You know, and there's the oceans of ink have been spilled on that topic. Not, not the Nazarite topic, but on the question that that verse raises. How should we understand the law? Yes, Kip. Jesus curses the fig tree, yes. Yes, okay. Okay, so that, that's a great question. And actually, a lot of people who really hate God and hate the Bible have used that passage as a reason to hate God further. You see, Jesus is just this vindictive guy. He walks up to a tree and he just curses it. Okay, couple thoughts. Number one, those little fig trees are everywhere in, the, in that region of the country. It would be like walking up to... Uh, a, a choke cherry tree here in Utah. They're just, they're everywhere, okay? Um, number two, uh, it wasn't anybody's specific tree, okay? It's not like Farmer Joe could come out there and say, um, hey, why did you kill my tree, okay? Um, and number three, even if it was Farmer Joe's tree, who ultimately owns the tree? Yeah, exactly. So, I've got a good illustration for this. A few years ago, yes. Okay. So let me let me illustrate something. Okay. Um, um, I don't like killing things. Um, I just don't. Even when I fish, I like to catch and release. I don't like to kill the fish. And, um, when it rains out here in the spring, the worms get on the parking lot, and people tease me because they're gonna, they're goners. They're, the sun's gonna cook them, and I'll walk around the parking lot and pick them up and throw them back into the grass. <laughs> like I don't care if the birds get them at that point. It's like that's the circle of life. I'm just giving them a fighting chance, you know. Um, well, I had a tree up on the corner of my property that was getting in the way of our sight lines when we were trying to reverse out of the driveway. Okay. I don't like killing things, cutting things down, but the tree was not serving my purposes anymore. And so I cut it down. The farmer whose family here in the valley goes back how many ever generations, who kind of still deep down thinks he owns my property, um, comes racing up to my driveway and, to, and starts to cuss me out because I'm cutting down that tree. That tree's been long, there longer than I've been. And um, I won't say his name. Uh, I said, it's my tree. <laughs> he could, and he, he, I could tell he wanted to say, no, it's not. Because deep down, he thinks it's his. You know? 
And I said, it's, it's my tree, and I can't see, my wife can't see when she's reversing out of the driveway, and I can cut it down if I want to. Okay. And he stormed off. Um, well, it's Jesus' tree, and he can use it for whatever purposes he wants to use it for. Now, and I realize it might seem out of character. A tree is not a, a tree doesn't have a soul. It's an object. It's a thing. And the sovereign of the universe, to make a point, can say, can, can wither it. You know what I mean? And it may seem out of character, but that was actually the point. It's the shocking nature of what he did, because eventually Jesus is coming back to judge everybody. And those who are fruitless, he will curse. Yeah. And he's giving an illustration on a relatively small thing to shock us into going, oh, we're dealing with somebody who has the power to inflict great judgment on us. So, I hope that answers your question. I don't think it will ever totally take away the shocking nature of it because that was actually part of the... part of the... Have I agreed with any of them? Okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. As long as I'm in decent company. <laughs> they probably didn't mention that part. Yeah, yeah, okay, got it. All right, so, others. Yes, Daniel. Yeah, it's like you and Danielle got together and decided to come up with the one unanswerable question. Okay, no, it's, it's fine. This is a question we come back to a lot, and I, I think I'm going to single these two out back here in the back. Opal and Ben ask a lot of the questions that relate to the exact same issue. How does the New Testament relate to the Old? Okay, in the case of Acts 15, aren't those things kind of in the law, and now they're putting law on people? Um, the way we've interpreted those is this. Um, they're not putting legal demands on them in the sense of you have to keep these laws. Okay? What they're saying is the, the body of Christ is one. And the, in the church, Jew or Gentile are supposed to live together, minister together, worship together in perfect harmony. Okay? And these were Gentile practices that were so odious to Jewish Christians that they just couldn't get over those mental things. And so what they're saying is, in an effort to be one and whole with these people, we're not asking you to be circumcised because that's covered by clothing and so forth. But these things are so open and obvious and public that we're asking you to abstain from those things so that the weaker brothers, in this case, so that the Jewish people will feel more comfortable fellowshipping with you. Um, and so, yes, um, abstaining from sexual immorality, I mean, that's, of course, you know, the Bible through, but a strangling of an animal, that was a pagan, that, that was a rooted in pagan practice, and 
and essentially what they're saying is tr try to get those things out of your day-to-day -day life so that you can harmonize with Jewish people. That's, again, what we think is happening. Um, but these questions of, and you can keep asking those questions. I'm not trying to discourage you from those questions. I'm saying those are very hard questions to answer, and it's a huge field of study that's become more prominent in the last 10, 15 years of how does the old relate to the new, or the new relate to the old. Great questions, by the way. Others? Okay, very quickly. I had you turn in the book of Exodus. Okay, I think I can cover most of what I wanted to cover in the time that we have remaining. It says right there in chapter 1, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Go down to verse uh, 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Go down to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and so forth. Right here in the first three paragraphs of the book of Exodus, the topic sentence is Egypt, Egypt, and Egypt. In fact, the word Egypt is the word used third most in the book of Exodus other than the name Yahweh and Moses. Okay? The word Egypt is actually uh, comes from kind of uh, not exactly a Greek word, uh, but the Greek had a parent language called Coptic, and Greek comes from Coptic, and this is a Coptic word um, from the word Ijopt, which means river, okay? Um, um, the Hebrew word is, um, starts with an M. It's, uh, yeah, it starts with an M, Mitzrayim, okay? And it doesn't sound like Egypt at all. <laughs> But both of the words relate to the word river. If you're going to understand the book of Exodus, you have to understand Egypt, and you have to understand the river. Now, what river are we talking about? The Nile, the great river Nile, the Nile River. Uh, historians have said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile, okay? The Nile is an amazing river. It runs south to north, and it runs over the driest and sunniest section of earth on the planet. Egypt is the sunniest and the driest place in the world. Egypt is just situated on the, the upper northeast corner of the Sahara Desert, and to this day, 99% of the people live within walking distance of the Nile River. We're told that today, 95% of the people live on 3% of the land. Okay? The river is a marvel. Like I said, it runs from north to south, and depending on how you count the distance, it's either the longest or the second longest river in the world. Okay? Um, if you count it a different way, it's the Amazon. If you count it a different way, it's the Nile. But they're very, very close either way. What's interesting about the Nile is that it's, though it's really long, it's not particularly full. 
it only delivers 5% of the water that the Congo River delivers. It's, it's a very small river by volume. But this is actually advantageous. It's rather shallow. It flows gently. It provides a ton of drinking water. Did you know that Egypt receives, on average, 0.15 inches of rainfall a year? I get down with that. <laughs> the, up, up by where the Nile flows into the Mediterranean, they get a little bit more on this very narrow sliver of land, but for the most of the nation, it's a very dry country. But did you know that for as dry as Egypt is, it's the breadbasket of the Middle East? How is it that Egypt produces more wheat and barley and papyrus than any other nation in that region? In fact, if you were to read like today, if you were to go read a travel guide for the book of Egypt, it says, if you don't like a vegetarian diet, don't visit Egypt. <laughs> it's almost all of their food is grown out of the ground. Okay. Well, every year, they've since minimized this a little bit as they've dammed the river, but every year the Nile overflows its banks. And with the overflowing of those banks, the river delivers a fresh bed of jet black dirt called silt into the surrounding farmlands. Because the river delivers this silt, the land around the river remains flooded for two or three months of the year. The crops are planted, and then they yield four to six months later, and then they don't do anything with the land until it floods again. So because of that, you've got this highly agrarian society, but it requires very little work. In fact, because of that, historians have theorized that because the Israel could produce uh, grain so abundantly with relatively little work, it made the construction projects that we see today possible. Egypt is also really uh, abundant in limestone and sandstone. And the sphinxes, the pyramids that you see, they're built almost entirely out of limestone. And so the pharaohs were in charge of these huge workforces that could build these massive pyramids and building programs because a relatively small amount of the population could create huge amounts of food. And these huge amounts of food would feed nations all over, and that created a lot of trade. Because of that trade, because of the building, Egypt became incredibly wealthy. Um, Egypt has been called the, 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 um, the birth of civilization. And you can find Egyptian relics dating back 8,000 years BC. Okay? Um, right about the time that Joseph went down to Egypt, some foreign rulers called the, I believe it's the Hyskos. It might also be pronounced the Hyskos. It's H-Y-S-K-O-S. There were some foreign rulers from the Middle East. Uh, from They were Semitic people from up where Israel now is. They came down and invaded Egypt. They were despised foreign rulers. 
and they managed to hold Egypt captive for about 150 years. In fact, we're almost certain that this was about the time that Joseph was there because he was given an Egyptian name. Can anybody Bible trivia remember what Joseph's name was? Joseph's Egyptian name? And as soon as I say it, I forgot it. So I can't answer my own question. Oh, his name, his, I'll get it. I'll I'll look it up in one second. Okay. Somebody's going to look it up and beat me to it. But he was given a Hiskos name. Okay. Well, one of, so Joseph goes there, rises to power, probably under these, these Semitic rulers. And then in the intervening time, the Egyptian people rebelled and threw off the Hiskos rulers. And thus we have, it says right here, that a Pharaoh arose who had no, who, to whom Joseph meant nothing. And you can see why these, these people would say, you know what, before these Hiskos people came down and enslaved us, and now there's this growing population of Semitic people just north of us. We kicked out the Hiskos. What happens if more Hiskos people come down to invade our nation? They didn't have satellites. They didn't know what was just over the horizon. If those people come down again, the Israelites will join them and will make trouble for us. Therefore, let's deal shrewdly with them. So you had a nation of people who were very sensitive racially to other Semitic rulers. They'd they'd been enslaved by them for some time. Threw them off, and now we're doing some preventative maintenance, okay? And therefore put the Egyptian put the Israelites under slavery and did so for quite some time. These Israelite people became active in the building trades. They were the ones supplying the brick and mortar and the blocks and all this other stuff for these vast construction projects. They weren't laboring away in the agricultural fields because it wasn't so necessary at that time. And in Egypt, you had this vast amount of wealth flowing into the country. And because of that wealth, those pharaohs were able to subjugate God's people more and more and more. Okay? The Egyptian people, because of that wealth, because of that agriculture, because of the rising skyscrapers for their time, were much like Americans are today in thinking that they were living at the height of human civilization. If you would have asked an Egyptian living circa 1450 BC, they would have told you that they were the top of the heap. Did you know that Egyptians had indoor plumbing about this time of the world? Uh, they They were quite the engineering group of people. Well, they worshiped the river. They worshipped the sun, the sun that literally shines every day. 
And what God does kindly for them is he starts showing them his superiority over the sun when things go dark. He shows them superiority over the river when the frogs come out. He shows them his superiority over the winds, which was another one of their gods that bring in the grasshoppers or the locusts. He shows them superiority over the Red Sea when he parts it. God has a message for us and for the Israelites in the book of Exodus. But there was also a major part of God where he was giving a message to the Egyptians who thought that they were at the top of the heap. And God comes and humbles them systematically through everything we're going to study in this book later on. Okay? I had to condense that. My apologies. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get ready for worship. Father, I pray that you would bless our time um, as we prepare to worship, and I pray that you would help us to understand this book much better. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.